4: On KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in the weeks leading up to the presidential election, Twitter and Facebook grew praise from political misinformation watchdogs for attaching warning labels to misleading posts and banning accounts associated with QAnon and extremist groups. But those moves may have breathed life into so-called free speech platforms like Parlor, where banned right wing stars like Alex Jones have found a home and where prominent Trump supporters have migrated. We'll look at the rising popularity of these alternative social networks and their implications for our already fractured national political discourse. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Groups demanding election recounts and peddling false claims of election fraud are moving to social media sites like Parler. That's after Facebook tried to ban Stop the Steal and other similar groups, and after Twitter began more aggressively fact-checking the president. For much of last week, Parler has been the most popular app in Apple and Google stores, and company leaders say it has doubled its membership to some 10 million. And Parler isn't the only alternative social network that's gaining popularity. Rumble and MeWe, among others, have too. And in this hour, we learn more about what these networks are and their potential to further proliferate right-wing conspiracies or whip up extremist groups at an increasingly fragile time for our democracy. Joining me is Ariel Pardis, senior writer for Wired. Thanks so much for
3: joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You cover our
4: relationship to our technology, and I understand that you hung out on Parler last week. Wondering what you can tell us about it and what jumped out at you when you joined?
3: Absolutely. So there's been a sort of exodus of conservative voices from Twitter and Facebook in the days since the election. And one of the rallying cries from these folks is, forget Twitter where you might be censored or have your content moderated and follow me on Parler. Um, So I wanted to see what the content looked like on the app and how it was different from what I was already seeing on social media. The thing that you have to understand about Parler is that there are only two rules. You can't post anything illegal and you can't post spam but the network has really built itself as a place where anything else goes. So a lot of the content that's currently being flagged or taken down on platforms like Facebook and Twitter gets reborn on Parler in a different form um, with different followings. I mean, it's it's not so different from a Twitter, to be honest. The sort of standard features like retweet and like um, exist there. They've just been renamed. Um, but it is a place where um, the sort of star users of the alt-right have, have found new followings and new ways to spread information.
4: So even though, as you said, the two rules are nothing criminal and no spam, what gave you the sense that it actually is pushing conservative content more than, say, just generally allowing people to freely express themselves.
3: Yeah, I mean, I do think it's an important distinction. Often when we talk about sites um, like Parler as well as sites like Rumble or MeWe or Newsmax, which you just mentioned, um, there's this tendency to talk about them as conservative social media sites. Um, I'm not sure that's entirely true. Um, Conservatives, of course, have long enjoyed speaking on Twitter and Facebook and these sort of more conventional social platforms. Um, I think more so the thing that's important is that Parler has become this place for sort of refugees of the increasingly moderated social internet. So these are people who feel slighted um, either by having their own posts taken down, um, having their own posts fact-checked, or watching, for example, President Trump repeatedly get his you know tweets and Facebook posts flagged. Um, by content moderators, it's it's these people sort of with a refugee mentality, creating a new home where they can say the things um, that they want to say, which aren't always conservative, but do frequently include, um, you know, disputed truths, misinformation, um, or sort of alternative news stories.
4: But even though that's the case, it sounds like when you joined that you were immediately pushed to start following conservative political commentators and conservative personalities.
3: That's absolutely right. Parlor is really set up to amplify the voices of its star users or verified influencers, as they're called on the platform. So when you sign up for an account, it prompts you to follow all of these people um, on the platform. You know, they're people like Sean Hannity, Ted Cruz, um, Diamond and Silk, the conservative internet personalities. Um, and these these are the people who... Um, whose content is, is pushed most often. So um, it's true that you're not going to find um, you know, what we would call, I think, the left wing influencer set on the platform. Instead, you're going to see things like, you know, this morning I opened the app and saw that Diamond and Silk were pushing um, some narratives about governors telling Americans not to spend Thanksgiving with their families. Um, you know, th- these governors should be arrested, they're saying. These are the kinds of posts you'll find on Parlor.
4: And can you tell us a little bit more about the founder and what we've learned right now about its major funder?
3: Yeah. So Parler was founded in 2018 um, by a pair of software engineers, the CEO and co-founder is named John Matzi. He's a 27-year-old um, who has sort of dabbled in tech and started the platform almost as an antithesis to Twitter, um, as sort of an oppositional type of platform. Um Originally, it wasn't known exactly how Parler was being funded, but it was so small that it it wasn't really um, a big question. And just recently, The Wall Street Journal has reported that Parler is receiving some substantial financial backing from Rebecca Mercer, the conservative donor. Um, and more details, I think, are to come about who exactly is bankrolling the app and what the stipulations are here. Um, but we can definitely be certain that they're not courting the same set of investors as apps like Twitter and Instagram did in their early days.
4: And it sounds like even Matzi has had a hard time dealing with disinformation on his own site. I mean, even claims that Parler was actually funded, say, by like Soros or I don't even remember what
3: the, yeah. what it was. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so with, with Parler as well as you know, Rumble, Newsmax, MeWe, Gab, all of these platforms have defined themselves as the free speech platform. But you'll remember that Twitter, until very recently, defined itself as the free speech wing of the free speech party. So I, I think what's important to remember here is that you know how you define free speech can come in many, many, many forms. And that's sort of where the rubber hits the road. So, you know, Matzi has already had to deal with, you know, kicking people off the platform, um, trying to regulate trolling and spam comments. People um, over the summer were just leaving photos of feces in mass on the platform, which resulted in sort of mass banning from Matsy. Um, and most recently when I was on Parler, um, there was this rumor spreading about Parler that George Soros, um, the billionaire ph- philanthropist, uh, owned the platform. And this rumor was spreading in mass on Parlor. Um, and Matzi had to sort of take to the platform and defend himself and say, this isn't true. This is misinformation. Um, but it, it, gets, it gets you into these tangles, right? Um, the interesting thing is not to say that you're about free speech or that you're about liberty. It's to show how you enforce that. Where does that rule actually come into play? And, and how do you sort of find the boundary in the gray area that is free speech on the internet?
4: We're talking with Ariel Parta, senior writer for Wired. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions do you have about Parler? Are you considering moving to another platform? Or maybe you want to share how you think Twitter and Facebook handled misinformation this election cycle and what you think about the fact that it's being basically um, blamed or viewed as the reason that people were prompted to leave and seek out alternative sites in droves. Uh, Beth writes, the majority of folks I've encountered on Parler are moderate thinkers who appreciate a good debate, and they do so in a thought-provoking manner without slurs and vitriolic words. Facebook has gotten too big, and rather than have humans overseeing posts, they use computer-generated algorithms to censor posts, including innocent progressives' thought-provoking posts. I've been saying for years that those unhappy with Facebook and Twitter should get some investors together and create some competition, and I think Parler, as well as MeWe and other sites, will be good competition. Walter tweets, I tried Parlor just to see what it's all about. It's very much a negative space filled with very angry, disheartened people believing in conspiracies. There's little diversity for other topics like arts or culture to thrive. Ariel Partis, I'm wondering um what you think about concerns that have been raised about parlor and other entities that can become echo chambers for white right-wing conspiracies. While you've talked about how generally, you know, the philosophy behind it is sort of neutral in the sense that they're just saying it's free speech, no spam, nothing criminal, but they are also are an entity now that has been able, that, you know, they've allowed, like, the Proud Boys, for example, and white supremacists to have, you know, a lot of that platform as well. They're also allowing Alex Jones and other people who have have certainly played a big role in really whipping up um, and potentially radicalizing people with right-wing views.
3: Yeah, I think it's telling that many of the folks with the biggest followings on platforms like Parler and and other platforms that are like it are people who have been banned from platforms like Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, um, which tells you something about the type of content that these people are presenting to their followers. Um, we haven't yet seen how this will play out with Parler. I mean, the the platform is two years old, but it's really just picked up steam within the last week. Um, So I think there are a lot of open questions, but I mean, we could look at other sort of alternative social platforms like Gab, for example, which um, is a platform founded in 2016, shortly after Twitter introduced some of its new policies around hate speech. Um, This was a platform that was created to create an alternative, a place where you could say whatever you wanted without fear of being Censored. Um, But of course, what we've seen on platforms like that is that they they tend to draw some of the most, you know, sort of fringe and strange ideologies that then snowball into um, entire groups or people. And and Gab, of course, received the most attention and scrutiny um, after the 2018 shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue. Um, the shooter in that incident had an account on Gab and had used the platform to share violent and deeply anti-Semitic ideas. So I think it is important to understand that it's not just about these platforms creating a safe space for conservatives to talk about the things that are important to them. It's a space where you know people whose ideologies are, are explicitly not welcome in the mainstream of society can find, you know, new oxygen for those ideologies and new followers. And
4: can you just quickly explain what Rumble is?
3: Yes. So Rumble is a video platform that has emerged as a sort of alternative to YouTube. So Parler has um, attracted a lot of users who are unhappy with Twitter's content moderation policies, perhaps people who've been banned from Twitter. Rumble is sort of like that with YouTube. Um, and it's been populated by many people who have had their accounts or their video content banned on YouTube specifically. Um you know, Rumble has grown tremendously since the election, similar to Parlor. It says it has something like 90 million people watching its videos now, um, which is a substantial number of people.
4: We're talking about the rising popularity of conservative social networks with Ariel Pardis, senior writer at Wired. And you can join the conversation by calling 866 733 6786. Again, 866 733 6786. You can email us at forum at kqed.org or Post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Stay with us.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
4: This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Facebook and Twitter have clamped down on election misinformation, and it's prompted claims of bias against conservatives. Even while right-leaning voices continue to top their lists of popular content, now conservative social networks are gaining new members, and in droves, they say. And we're learning more about. Who they are, what they are, and their implications for our already fractured politics. We have Ariel Partis, with a senior writer at Wired, and also joining us now is Renee Deresta, research manager at Stanford Internet Observatory, where she investigates the spread of malign narratives across social networks and assists policymakers in understanding and responding to the problem. Thanks so much for joining us, Renee Deresta. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the things that Ariel Partis mentioned uh, is that censorship comes up a lot. The conservatives feel like they're being censored, and it's like a a running grievance. And I remember Ted Cruz back in June slamming Silicon Valley for censorship and actually promoting Parler. And I wondered if I could play a little bit of that for you and, and get your reaction.
5: Big tech is out of control, filled with hubris and flagrantly silencing those with whom they disagree. From conservative media organizations to the President of the United States and millions of Americans in between. These actions don't just threaten our First Amendment rights and our free speech. They threaten the integrity of our elections and the future of our democracy. With another presidential election just months away I'm working in the Senate every day to hold big tech accountable to the American people and to make sure that your voices are heard. That's why I'm proud to join Parler. This platform gets what free speech is all about, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Let's speak, let's speak freely, and let's end the Silicon Valley censorship.
4: So, Renee, Dureza, is that one of the key grievances that really make these platforms compelling or really draw a lot of people?
6: Yeah, so the grievance, uh, the, the conservative are censored grievance, uh, particularly coming from Ted Cruz. Unfortunately, it's not borne out by the actual data or the statistics on the platform, but it has become a very popular narrative uh, that does drive people to feel that they have been unfairly treated, mistreated, and so it makes these calls to join alternative platforms uh, quite compelling. Senator Ted Cruz, interestingly, if you look at the uh, publicly available statistics about his interactions on Facebook, one of the committees held a hearing recently I believe it was the Senate Commerce Committee. And one of the things that uh, that we looked at ahead of that was how the engagements were shaping up for all of the different senators on the committee over the last year. And Senator Cruz, in his across his two pages, had about uh, seventeen million interactions, which was uh, close to, I think, Gosh, the next most popular uh, senator was uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar with four million. So Ted Cruz was by far the senator with the most interactions on Facebook. He does quite well on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the idea that Senator Cruz is in any way censored and needs to leave either of those platforms uh, is farcical if you actually look at the the actual data, uh, but the narrative plays quite well.
4: Yes, the narrative plays quite well, even when it isn't true. And that really is, in many ways, the point and the danger, right, Renee Duressa? that it really doesn't seem to matter anymore what is true.
6: Well, that's right. And that's because this is uh, one of the ways that people come to believe in narrative is through persistent repetition. And so since it became clear that the platforms were beginning to moderate, and it's, it's important to note that the moderation is not viewpoint based, it's often behaviorally based. And unfortunately, there were certain types of behaviors that the platforms determined to be harmful, that were kind of disproportionately carried out by conservative influencers. And so Several of those people, you know, such as um, fake account networks or uh, kind of uh, coordinated cross-posting to pages to try to, you know, sort of juice their engagements on Facebook. There were a number of these behavioral um, actions that were taken that led to Facebook taking down a few networks in mid 2018, and that was what really kind of precipitated this idea that the platforms were disproportionately targeting conservatives.
4: Well, let me go to caller Phil in Burlingame. Hi, Phil. Join us.
0: Hi. You know, can we talk about free speech? You know, free speech doesn't include the right to yell fire in a crowded theater or to slander or deceive. And only U.S. citizens have protected speech. You know, Russian trolls have no U.S. free speech rights. You know, when are we going to have a conversation about what speech
2: is protected?
4: Phil, thanks. I mean, this use of saying that Parlor is a free speech platform, but we hear from Ariel Partis just exactly what kind of speech is prioritized there. I mean, have we sort of lost the concept of what it really is? I mean, it's also very debatable, but it's also also had strong foundations in our nation and that we've been able to somehow uh have and hold without seeing the most recent proliferation that we've seen.
6: Well, I think it's really important to not lose sight of the fact that free speech and free expression are cherished values and you know paramount to our democracy, uh, and you know globally uh, it's something that we've tried to export as as Americans for quite some time—the idea that democratic governance, that that participation, that freedom to express oneself is is a kind of a, a core human right. The challenge, and I think what people are uncomfortable with in the in the age of social media, is that you have phenomenal reach that goes along with your speech. So what that means is um, somebody posts something and there's an algorithmic amplification effect, which means that the speech is no longer the equivalent of you you expressing yourself in a public square. There are share buttons and like buttons, which again, the original intent was to signal um kind of like a a, to signal quality this is something that other people should be paying attention to but since those engagements can be faked what happened was uh you know bad actors realized that they could game those structures to amplify their content to give it disproportionate reach in fact and then when the platforms have uh, curation and recommendation engines that further amplify certain types of content unfortunately Quite often, the most sensational types of content that also created uh, an incentive, you know, kind of misaligned incentives where being sensational, being outrageous was rewarded by the algorithm. Uh, faking some engagement to make the algorithm amplify you to then get real engagement. So, sort of the fake likes begetting real likes was also a dynamic uh, that was happening. Um, you know, some, the caller mentioned Russia, and of course, while that's a small percentage of the activity on the platform, uh, one of the things that you're able to do today that you that you know people never really had the ability to do before uh, is to run targeted ads grow a targeted engaged audience russia was constantly beseeching its audience to like and share like and share like and share because they they recognized that this dynamic would ensure that their content reached far more people organically uh, then they could reach with paid ads. So the dynamic of what we call uh, participatory propaganda—you know, ways in which people participate in the dissemination of the content, ways in which instead of it being uh, speech that reaches your closest circle, it reaches instead potentially millions to hundreds of millions depending on how this engagement game is played.
4: Yeah. Uh, Renee deress I think you're really getting at the conditions that we've created that has helped make these narratives and things so powerful. Uh, speaking of Russia, Ariel Partis James tweets, Parler is just the Russian-sponsored version of Gab. We get these all the time, and they never take off. Remember Conservopedia? Do they have an article on Parler? A couple things there. First, um, what do you think is the staying power of something like a parlor? I mean, they've mentioned that their that their growth has been to 10 million. But remind us if you could about just the relative size of, of Twitter, which I guess is its competitor. And then the other question I just wanted to ask you is there have been some questions raised about um, parlor having ties to Russia. Do you know if there's anything there?
3: Great question. Well, to your to your first point, um, it, it's true. Parlor has grown exponentially in the past week, but at at present, it has you know something like ten million users. Twitter has hundreds of thousands. I think the latest statistic is three hundred and thirty um, million. Excuse me, million users. Right. Facebook has billions of users. So we're really talking about a small fish in a very big pond here. Um, And of course, the reason that social networks catch on is because of network effects. If there are more people there, if there are bigger followings, if all your friends and everyone you want to talk to is on the the network, then that's a reason to stay. Um, But sort of without those network effects, it is very possible that Parler, like so many of um, the other apps in this space, will just sort of fizzle and die. To your second question about um, the relationship to Russia, um, John Matsey is married to a Russian woman. And so there have been some questions about um, the relationship between her family, the origins of the app, um, and the potential influence of Russian actors on some of the the policies and designs of Parler. I'm not sure that any of that has been proven out yet, but what I will say for sure is that um, with all the recent attention and scrutiny to an app like Parler, um, people will definitely start to be asking these questions more seriously, digging a little more deeply, and trying to unravel what's really going on.
4: Well, this listener writes, Donald Trump, the Republican Party and their supporters are choosing to live in a reality of their making, a reality counter to democratic ideals and Western values with news that they are seeking to further isolate themselves in their own propaganda media apps. What will it take to bring them back to reality? Renee DeRess, I definitely want to get to that question of what it will take to bring that back to reality. And I also want to invite our listeners uh, to weigh in if they have thoughts on how we regain trust in sort of this offline real world uh, in order to help fuel maybe greater trust and accountability in the social media world. But I guess one of the things that I, I would love to talk with you a little bit about is just the degree to which you you are concerned that these kinds of sort of isolated social networks can create real and felt and potentially violent consequences on the ground. Do you have some examples that, you know, if you are worried that that you feel like are illustrative of why?
6: Sure, it's a great question. So one of the real... um, uh, just to draw on what the uh, what the listener had had alluded to, the idea of bespoke realities—you can create a reality of your own making—that's a dynamic that we're familiar with on social platforms, and it exists to different degrees depending on what platform you're on. Uh, on Facebook particularly in the groups context, you do see things that people, you know, people in the communities you've joined or the communities that have been pushed to you are sharing. And so there is this this dynamic of the echo chamber. And there's a difference between an echo chamber and just a closed community. It's kind of a niche, you know, maybe academic, Kind of geek definition, but the idea of an echo chamber is a community of people who actively reject the truths outside of their community. So if you are in a community, and you know you may be a, a passionate liberal or a passionate conservative, but you don't summarily dismiss uh, anything coming from the other side's media as you know false on its face, right? You you, you still engage with it. Um, once you're involved in these more insular communities. Uh, that's where you start to see more of the kind of radicalization dynamics come into play. The idea that you're only seeing content and anything that is not coming from your trusted sources, your trusted politicians, your trusted institutions, uh, anything else, anything that they do not say is false. And so that's the dynamic Uh, That people are concerned about when it comes to thinking about more insular closed spaces where people are are definitely not going to see any counter content or, you know, if we're using the um, democratic um, ideal, you know, the democratic ideal here of counter speech, right? The antidote to bad speech is more speech. This is the, the, the principle upon which free speech rests that the Claims, however, that when a fact check is appended to the president's tweet, that that is censorship as opposed to contextualization. That's where we start getting into some um, some signals that there are really uh, troubling dynamics at play. Because rather than seeing that, um, look, here's this, here's what a fact checker has to say about this statement. Um, the the there are a lot of audiences that are um, just. Uh, outraged at the audacity that the platform would do something like that. They see it as uh, as, as censoring the president's speech, as opposed to seeing it as here's the kind of, uh, here's the link to the counter speech, basically. So that's, that's a troubling dynamic. The growth of Parler, so there are punctuated periods. I've been on Parler since um, December 2018 or so. So I've had an account for quite some time. And it has been, I joined in part because Epic Times and NTD are just extraordinarily active on there. They are posting every, you know, three to seven minutes, just kind of an uh, like an, uh, an algorithmic feed of, of their headlines. And I was kind of fascinated by that dynamic, by the fact that Epic was on there long before Fox News influencers came on. They didn't come on until the wave with Ted Cruz and, uh, and folks in around the uh, mid-2020 timeframe. So this has been a... Really significant shift. The 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 publications that were active on there, the news media, the entities that were pushing out content to people who were on Parler early in its in its uh, incarnation, were the more um, niche content. And that's what you're continuing to see. There's been a really interesting divide now where even Fox News is being rejected by some parts of the people who are very, very deeply in this ecosystem who believe that because Fox News called Arizona for Joe Biden and is also of the opinion that Joe Biden uh, won the presidential election. So in other words, in keeping with facts, um, what they are looking for instead is engagement with OANN and Newsmax and more Mm -hmm. extreme fringe media that are telling them what they want to hear. And that is, uh, that is I think, the real danger, that you, you immerse yourself in a space where you are only told what you want to hear by properties that are financially incentivized to keep telling you what you want to hear. And then eventually there is a crash because your reality <laughs> doesn't comport with actual reality. And that's where uh, there's the tendency for something like violence among communities of people who are absolutely convinced that the election has been stolen.
4: Right. So what does it tell you that when, yeah, you have had maybe, say, a Fox News that has been supporting your reality for a really long time, doing the bare minimum in terms of fact checking um, or, you know, saying who won the presidential election and how by something as logical as vote counts, that it actually rather than moderating people's views and saying, oh, okay, like maybe I should accept this because I trust this news source because it's been, you know, something that I believed in and, and supported my views for so long rather than doing that it ends up actually driving people toward Newsmax and OEN and as you were saying you know these other alternative alternative platforms I mean what does it say about where we're at I guess as a society Renee Resta.
6: I think that what it says about us as a society is that they're, they're this, this crisis of trust is bigger than social media, right? Social media is infrastructure. It's the infrastructure upon which you get your information, it's where you communicate with your friends. Uh, it's now so tightly coupled with broadcast media, right? Sometimes the narrative emerges up from the bottom where social media chatter becomes the nightly news. Other times, people on social media discuss what was on the nightly news, right? So there's this, uh, this interplay between these ecosystems at this point. Um, there are, you know, historically low levels of trust in media, um, historically high levels of polarization, and so the dynamics at play are far bigger than what Facebook chooses to show you or, you know, these are platforms that are that exacerbate it, that, that reflect it, but also at the same time, uh, people are looking to find people who are like them Uh, to communicate with, to commiserate with, particularly at this time when there are people who sincerely believe that Donald Trump was reelected and are looking to kind of uh, hold out, you know, hold out hope and, and kind of continue to fight that fight.
4: We're talking about the rising popularity of conservative social networks with Renee DeResta, a research manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. You, our listeners, are with us. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org and tell us how you think we need to regain trust offline in the real world and what questions you have about these alternative social media networks like Parler and whether or not they are, you've been drawn to them. Ariel Pardes, senior writer at Wired, has been with Thanks so much for joining us and for your reporting on Parlor. It was really illuminating.
3: Thank you so much.
4: And we'll have more with Renee Deresta after the break. Stay with us. We'll get straight to your calls. I'm Mina Kim.
1: You're
4: listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how alternative social networks have seen their membership balloon in the wake of Facebook and Twitter more aggressively fact-checking the president or banning groups that are peddling uh, misinformation and and stories about election fraud. And we're talking with you, our listeners, 866 is the number to call if you want to join the conversation. Email us at forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. We have Renee Deresta with us, Research Manager at Stanford Internet Observatory, where she investigates the spread of malign narratives across social networks and assists policymakers in understanding and responding to the problem. And Lady Tweets, I watched Trump supporters and QAnon people who got censored on Twitter Twitter, tell each other to go to parlor. I decided it was not for me, but I'm worried that these platforms are totally unfiltered. QAnon started on similar platforms like 4chan. Let me go to caller Brad in San Rafael. Hi, Brad.
2: Um, thank, thank you for letting me speak. Um, well, I've always questioned why uh, there's no real confrontation or no real uh, attempt to hold the, some of the demagogues to what they're preaching. And specifically, I'm thinking honestly of of Rush Limbaugh. I I agree with Al Franken. Actually, I said it before, as far as I know, or or before Al Franken, that he probably had more influence in this election than any one single individual because he swayed about 20, 25 million votes for Trump, no matter what, constantly feeding misinformation and uh, appealing Mm. to people's base senses. But what I sense is, is a great amount of fear, trepidation, to take somebody like him on because he has such a devoted line of followers
4: brad thanks uh renee Deresta, your thoughts i think the um
6: the age of the influencer is a, is a really interesting dynamic so rush limbaugh's been around for quite some time um and there are a lot of prominent influencers on on talk radio um i think this again gets at the idea that it's not necessarily the the channel that matters. The interesting dynamic with social media is it's much more visible. It's much more, um, if you're on a large social platform and the recommendation engine picks you up and begins to amplify you then, or you are using ads, you're able to grow your audience and kind of recruit new adherents, right? Regardless of what the message is, that's the dynamic at play. And one of the things I think it's important to understand is that um moderation right the platform's deciding not to recommend something or in certain cases where they decide that it is an actively harmful thing such as coronavirus misinformation um, q anon election misinformation there's a few narrowly tailored areas where they've decided that something is sufficiently harmful uh, either at a societal level or an individual level that they take much more extreme action and they actually take it down that That act of taking it down moderates the supply of the content, but it doesn't moderate the demand for the content. It doesn't make that demand stop, and so people are going. You know, people who are part of these communities are going to try to find other places to continue to find their content, engage with their influencers. You know, the influencers that they've come to admire and trust, uh, and continue to have community. So, MeWe, which is another platform that people have raised on this call, um. Back in 2015, uh, I was I was part of an effort to change a vaccine law in California, and as part, of, this is just you know I was not at Stanford. I was just kind of an activist mom who this was kind of one of my causes. I, I really wanted to see immunization rates rise in California, and the anti-vaccine activists on the on Facebook in 2015. Um, put out a call to everybody to go migrate to MeWe. So this is this this behavior of believing that your community is about to be censored, about to be uh, deplatformed, and this idea that you need to build backup infrastructure on a platform that will continue to host you is a dynamic that's happened over and over and over again across various communities for years. So there was a you know vast number of anti-vaccine uh, community members that went and created accounts on MeWe back in 2015. Now, I created an account on MeWe back in 2015, again, just to see what happens on this platform. Is there, uh, is, is there a dynamic of, of, of um, high activity that grows from it? And what I saw then and what we saw on Parlor in... Uh, in june of 2020 when ted cruz and rand paul and everyone were encouraging people to go is there's periods of there's a spike in downloads a spike in account creations there's some immediate action to you know to begin to engage on the platform but it doesn't necessarily have staying power for a couple reasons one of which is that it doesn't have the design chops of facebook there's a reason why uh, well-designed platforms keep users there they're the entire function of the big tech companies is to keep you on their platform. And so they've built in uh, techniques and prompts and filtering and suggestions and spontaneity and ways for you to engage on the platform that keep you there. Smaller niche social networks don't have that... Uh, that feature set, you know, Parler doesn't have groups, for example. So if you go to Parler and you follow a bunch of people, what you're gonna see in your feed is who you've chosen to follow. If you wanna find new content, you have to search for a hashtag. It's really hard to just kind of find an organic conversation. So there's just certain design structures that are fundamentally different. So even when people go and hop to this platform, again, because there's real demand to have these communities and to see this content, but they don't necessarily stay. So what the moderation is really doing is it's perhaps reducing the number of new people who come into the community, the number of new people who see QAnon content for the first time, but it doesn't, it's not really doing anything to diminish demand for it among the people who already have it. What they're looking for now is new infrastructure for those communities.
4: So interestingly, I mean, could there be benefits? That's been one suggestion to groups better, like that it's better for groups to sort of isolate themselves because ultimately they could kind of... I don't know, flame out potentially, (laughs) without all the the nice bells and whistles that say a a Facebook platform has? Or do you think it's important to try to do your basic fact checking that people will stay on these sites, and that'll it be better, because ultimately, it will be more effective at helping people realize that there there is such a thing as a basic foundation of facts that we can at least all, you know, debate from?
6: I, I do believe that you know keeping people on these platforms is valuable. I don't think we necessarily want to push um, push people off. You know, the deplatform everybody into uh, you know federated system of of tiny apps. Um, I I think this is one of the areas where research is, is you know one of the things researchers are examining right now. Back when I think the first major deplatforming. Um, was actually ISIS. It was the decision to kick the kind of ISIS fanboys, the sort of, um, you know, again, very, very extreme. It sounds like an obvious layup today, but the question was, what do you do about them uh, on Twitter? And they were deplatformed and they did migrate into much, much more kind of niche closed channels like Telegram, where you really had to go looking for them as opposed to uh, accidentally seeing it. And so the, I don't think that there was quite a lot of uh, of scholarship on exactly how that dynamic played out. It's very hard to measure. Hmm. One of the things that's really tough for us as researchers is we don't have great visibility into the process by which people join these communities. We can't see that a recommendation has been shown to a person and then a person joins a group. We're sort of, at, you know, we're kind of at the mercy of looking at rough measures like engagements or group growth size, but it's hard for us to understand what the motivating factor or the design decision that led people to, to join those communities. Even here with, with Parler, um, we can see people are creating accounts, and you, know, you can see app downloads and things like that. You can see certain hashtags that are popular, uh, but it's hard to get a sense in aggregate of what is happening on the platform you really are much more constrained to understanding what certain you know certain communities are talking about or doing and yeah that's fine there's this is again the balance between kind of privacy and research but for us to understand the extent to which deplatforming has an effect on diminishing demand um that's where i think we don't quite have that scholarship at the moment
4: well let me go to gigi in oakland hi gigi hi Hi, you're on. Can you hear me? I can. Okay.
1: Um, My question, which you've elaborated on now, is about the fact that elected officials have a different standard that they are held to. They answer to the citizens that elected them or did not elect them. They answer to everyone who is a citizen of the United States. And so if they are saying things or posting things or tweeting things, This may be simplistic, but they are then eligible to be fired if they are tweeting things that are not true. I was a marketing director for years. If I wrote something and sent it in an email, even private email, if it was not what the corporation or the law firm wanted, I I could get fired for it. And so it seems that that same law would apply to our politicians and elected officials. Gigi, thanks. I mean, yeah,
4: what about repercussions for people who are elected?
6: Well, I mean, that's that's theoretically what voting in elections are, right? So the, um, you know, if, if you see a candidate consistently lying or misrepresenting the facts on social platforms, and, you know, really your, your next best uh, opportunity to get rid of them is, is in a democratic election, uh, short of in certain states holding a recall. So I think, again, the people sending a signal that that we want our politicians to be truthful um, is something that is uh, is critically important you know a lot of a lot of uh the power of the public is that now we can speak very directly back to elected officials on these platforms that's one of the uh, really significant kind of value adds that, they, that they've given us instead of just sending emails you can in fact kind of um voice your concerns quite, quite directly. And, you know, as, as uh, various kind of case law is, is beginning to uh, kind of formalize, they can't block you, right? They, you know, this is a place where you go to redress, you know, to uh, have redress and communicate with your elected officials. So constantly emphasizing that, you know, we expect our politicians to hold up these values of of speaking truth, I think is a a thing that we should be doing as citizens. Uh, The challenge is that there are Certain politicians that um, oftentimes, you know, are able. There's a couple of QAnon candidates who have just made it to Congress. Um, the passionate people in their, pri- you know, who went and voted for them in the primaries, and in certain states, winning the primary basically guarantees you the seat. Um, that dynamic is is still kind of a challenging one, right? That's it's. Yes. Their base are the people who you know, who they they believe resonated with their QAnon statements, uh, that that kind of um, content, you know, as, as they were engaging with that community. So really, it kind of falls to the rest of their constituents to push back against that.
4: Well, reading just a couple of comments, he tweets a ton of misinformation hit ethnic communities like the Vietnamese heart. I recall reading that some of this misinformation is actually from overseas. Does the emergence of alternative social media create a national security concern? Mary writes, my brother-in-law in in Toronto tells me there's no Fox News and no Rush Limbaugh in Canada. All the news comes through CBC. Sounds like an improvement to me. They have free speech without hate speech. Why can't we? Why, when, what would it take to take a revolution to get there? Would it take a revolution to get there, meaning here in the US? One of the things I'm really struck by, Renee DeResta, was a piece where you also talked about how, you know, when you're talking about elected officials or or reliable public officials who are appointed, also not fully understanding how information does move in the internet era and how they, as one of the ways that we can try to get at amplifying um, reliable voices, is for our public officials to better understand how social platforms, social networks, and social media work so that they can also use it. Do you think that that is key?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking about an article I wrote for The Atlantic specific to, um, I used the example of uh, COVID-19 misinformation uh, and how the anti-vaccine movement was very much driving a lot of the conversation on social media uh, was, was you know, these um, videos that were going kind of wildly viral that were blatantly false, uh, but the platforms were struggling with what to do about them because, again, once something starts to go viral, if it has 2 million views and then you take it down, uh, it, it gets a whole new lease on life as a story of, you know, forbidden knowledge and platform censorship. So the question is, uh, how do you, you know, throttle it to give your fact checkers time to address it uh, without, you know, turning it into, uh, you know, turning the content or the creator into a, a martyr for uh, for free speech. And so there's there's two things that work here like one there is this there are the structural problems with the information ecosystem okay so there are certain things like recommendation and curation and in my opinion certain affordances of features dedicated to virality that we need to be thinking about in a much more um holistic and strategic way than we have when they were just kind of added on to continue to you know drive engagement on a a social media platform so they could make more money right so there is problems with the ecosystem. And that I think is a that that's sort of where, you know, we spend a lot of our time is looking at those policies and thinking about how they can be changed. But then there's the other piece, which is there's this asymmetric passion where certain groups of people are just better at using the affordances that the platforms give them. And so part of this is because they're not necessarily required to stick to facts, right? Um, There is no penalty for lying. And so you know if you can lie and generate sensationalism or push a false cure and make a profit off of it the incentives are there for them to try to do it meanwhile scientists and you know people who work at institutions particularly as we saw during covid 19 have to hew to the facts right there it's it's a matter of life and death and so what they are trying to do is understand something like an emerging virus where you know you don't make those discoveries you don't get that scientific understanding in internet speed time you you know there's no new fact to report about coronavirus just because somebody has taken out their app and refreshed it and so the the there's a, a kind of structural difference in ways that uh older institutions and authority figures communicate that is partially uh you know because they are responsible for telling the truth and 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 declaring the facts, but it's also I think that there's still a framework where they believe that if you give a press conference and kind of uh, you know legacy or mainstream media reports out what it is you have to say, um, then people are just going to trust it because it came from you know from the CDC or from the World Health Organization, and that's no longer true uh, because of the constant you know kind of. Uh, anti-vaccine and other communities that are working to erode trust in those organizations, but also because they don't necessarily communicate as quickly and transparently as they should.
1: Mm-hmm. The internet
6: is forever. You know, People are going to remember that you said a thing in March and then you changed your mind in August. And sometimes in science, that's what happens, but you have to kind of allude back to that thing that you said in March and say, based on the new evidence that has come out, this is where we are today as opposed to, you know, the way that it's often done today where the guidance changes and then there's a whole chorus of people on the internet, you know, <laughs> screaming that they've just changed their mind and they were wrong and so on and so forth. So it's recognizing that people are expecting that to be part of that incremental conversation, that process of discovery. And if they're not participating in that process, they've created a void and that void is filled by the less reputable actors who are speaking.
4: Again, Renee DuResta is with Stanford's Internet Observatory. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Martha writes, one of my favorite conservative Facebook friends has vanished after moving to parlor. I miss her pets, garden memes, and other posts about non-political topics. I expect she'll be back on Facebook one day soon because I would think she's too well-rounded for that. There's more to life than politics. And this listener writes, just curious if the most appropriate designation for these platforms is conservative, or is it something else altogether? And we just have a minute left, but I think that's a really interesting question is the term conservative, and how the definition feels like it's changed?
6: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> this is the thing that we think about when we try to describe them in our own writing. Um, you know, what what would they be called, and what are they? Uh, you know, that those two things are not always the same. Uh, Me, we actually was not. You know, I've been surprised to see that lumped in with the uh, quote unquote conservative. Um, you know, conservative alt tech ecosystem, as it's sometimes called. Now, uh, I you know it was quite liberal uh, in, in 2015 and you know really just had these um, these individual groups and communities and kind of drew on everybody, I would say with parlor in particular, because so much of the drive to create you know the, the user. Um, the promotional efforts by various influencers and authority figures it is the conservative influencers and authority figures who are driving that push Mm -hmm. and so the majority of the users on it right now are people who have responded to those pushes and so i do think that is reasonable to call it um conservative or right-wing you know i think it's not just alt-right it's it's much broader than that at the same time people who are
3: Yes, More of the old Reaganite seconds.
6: conservatives, you know <laughs> um, you know, might might object to the phrase conservative. So this is a, this is a well, challenge.
4: It'll certainly be interesting to see the power that these alternative networks hold. Renee Duresta, Stanford Internet Observatory, thanks so much, and thanks to Susan Britton for producing today's segments and to our listeners for their questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds
1: for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation